0: Having been conked on the old cranium before, I knew it was wise to wake slowly and cautiously, in case whoever had done the conking was still present. As such, I opened one eye, my right one, very slightly to get a lay of the land. It was obvious that we were no longer in the crypt of the Church of Orphans, but rather back in our hotel rooms. Or at least someone's hotel room in Alderthrop. Standing at the foot of the bed I happened to be lying on, somewhat bound, were two figures pacing back and forth in a slightly awkward way. See, I told you if we led Morrissey and his chattering simpleton to the church, they would find a way into the crypt.
1: Our plan undoubtedly worked. Why, though, did we not dispense with these... two, rather than carry them back in the dead of night?
0: I thought, out of respect to your...
1: Stickle is dead. This is now certain. Whatever he might have thought of Morrissey is irrelevant.
0: Yes, quite. Sorry. The figure who was advocating our demise has leant over the other bed, where, I assumed, or hoped, his lordship lay. You know, when I look at him like this, I can't help but wonder what all the fuss was about. The simpering lord was duped for years,
1: accusing men of crimes Stickle himself had committed and covered up. Why he's continued to have a practice post the events in Glasgow I will never know. I assume the constabulary is even more dim-witted than previously suspected.
0: I nearly jumped out of bed at the impudence, stopped only because of the danger it might pose to his lordship, and the fact I was securely tied. Be that as it may, what is our plan? Aside from confirming Stickle's death, there was nothing in the crypt that indicates his contingency plan, if indeed he had one.
1: Oh, I have one. You'd not lead a conspiracy of criminal masterminds for over 200 years to have your long-term plans halted by someone being pushed down a well. Now, I think our plan now is to entice one of them to come out of hiding, and I think the corpses of Morrissey and his monkey lying on the altar of that damnable church should be sufficient motivation, don't you think? Hmm.
0: I think you're quite correct, my dear. Morrissey sounded very much awake. I turned my head to watch the spectacle of him leaping off the bed and in what looked like a pirouette, grab a walking stick and subdue our kidnappers with a series of rapid knocks and conks upon their persons. I think that should about do. Morrissey! Pluddles, my good man! Let me loosen those bonds! Morrissey set about untying me with alacrity. You probably want to know how I accomplished my feat. Like you, I made sure to pretend to be asleep as I recovered from unconsciousness. Unlike you, I have been keeping up with my rope-tying skills, and was able to loosen my bonds without them noticing. Once it was clear our kidnappers knew nothing more than was useful, I decided it was time to cut short the conversation before they cut short our lives. Finally free of my bonds, I stood. For a moment I thought about embracing my friend, but then decorum asserted itself. I'm sorry you had to hear some of what they said, Morrissey. Pish posh puddles. The opinion of criminals is not something we need to take account of. Indeed. So what are we to do with these two? The local constabulary, I'm sure, will be interested in them. Kidnapping is a serious charge, and kidnappers really start their criminal career with such a audacious crime. We, on the other hand, should return to Manchester. I have a few inquiries only a decent library can provide answers to. Right-o. I could feel the end of another exciting case approaching. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Dentith. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison, they are Dr. M. Dentith in both Auckland and Wellington respectively. We don't have an election to talk about much. I mean, I guess there'll be a bit in the bonus episode, but it feels a bit odd. I mean, you say, you say there'll be a bit in the bonus episode. There'll be a lot of it in the bonus episode. The election in the US is really the only conspiratorial news worth talking about. Mm. In a bonus episode anyway, in, this, in the main content of this episode, is of course time for another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. We've we've in our journey journey through time. We're all the way up to two thousand and seven now. I mean, I, we should have say journey, journey through space. Some of us have been moving locations during this time as well. Well, that's true. That's true. Yes. So we're looking at um we're looking at another paper by by our friend Steve Clark, uh, published in two thousand and seven, um, and as you'll see, it's nine eleven is in full swing now. Uh, a large part of this paper is devoted to nine eleven truth conspiracy theories, um, so they're up with the game, and it um, it talks about the internet. Yes, Strangely and enough. it talks about the internet at an age in which we thought maybe the internet would work for the common good. Mm. Yes, think think back before we start talking about this paper. Think back to what the internet was like in two thousand and seven. Um, I joined Twitter in 2008, I remember that much, but it was around then, wasn't it? Yes, I think I joined about that time, yeah, so Twitter was about a year old, Facebook was two to three years old, social media was pretty young, so you'd had, I think Tumblr was around by that point in time, but the real social media, which kind of isn't the social media now was blogger and Blogging, blogspot. yes web yeah. 2.0 do you remember web 2.0 Re- remember when people had blogs mm. remember when people kept blogs up to date uh, well yes i was going i was i was about to say i have a blog and then you said that and like you yeah, know that's that's actually fair yeah blogs is... now are where ideas go to die mm, that's pretty much true um so that's that's the that's the context this paper was written in um shall we shall we just get straight into it then have you any Thing else to say before we start the episode proper? Only one thing. Play the chime. Right, so, let's give it its full name. The paper we're looking at today is Conspiracy Theories and the Internet, Controlled Demolition and Arrested Development by Steve Clark in Episteme slash Episteme 2007. And this is the special issue on Conspiracy Theories edited by David Cody, which we'll be talking about a lot, although we have just skipped a paper. So there's mm-hmm. a paper by Michael Borman which is on fundamentalism. And at the time I read it, back in 2007, I thought, this has very little to do with conspiracy theories. And looking over it again in 2020, I went, yeah, this is basically a complete dead-end or non-entity in the literature. It actually would be a waste of our time to talk about it. So we've basically skipped over a paper and gone from Brian all the way to Steve, bypassing Michael. Good. So the abstract of this paper reads... Following Clark 2002, a Lakatosian approach is used to account for the epistemic development of conspiracy theories. It's then argued that the hypercritical atmosphere of the internet has slowed down the development of conspiracy theories, discouraging conspiracy theorists from articulating explicit versions of their favoured theories, which could form the hard core of Lakatosian research programmes. The argument is illustrated with a study of the controlled demolition theory of the collapse of three towers at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. Um so yeah, stra- straight away I I thought this was quite this was an interesting angle to be taking because these days people talk about conspiracy theories in the internet a lot david Ferry is on, on on about it all the time and the main thing people seem to be talking about is how how in, um the internet affects you know the dissemination of conspiracy theories they're all over the place they're spreading they get into the mainstream more easily and so on but um this paper in fact is talking about the internet's effect on the on the quality of conspiracy theories, not their not their prevalence or spread. And indeed this is a paper that I've cited a lot when talking with other academics about the notion of what the internet has done for conspiracy theorizing as a phenomenon. And it's quite interesting going back and revisiting it because the last time I read it was back in two thousand and seven, when this paper was first published. It has now been thirteen years, mm-hmm. and let us say that history has not been kind to people who had hope about the internet back in two thousand and seven. It is unfortunately true. Um. So this uh, this paper is in four parts, or is it five? Is the conclusion part five? Yes. Um, So part one is an introduction and talk about research, which is basically a recap of um, Steve Clark's papers that we've looked at previously. The one from 2002 that mentioned in the abstract that is of conspiracy theories. No, that would be Brian's paper that's of conspiracy theories. Uh, So Steve's is the one that comes after that. I remember the names. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing. That's the one. That's the one. Uh, what you'll recall is we he talked about the, the the whole research programs and the problem with conspiracy theories being that conspiracy theorists um, stick to these degenerating research programs, and and Steve suggests it's due to them suffering from the. Um, Uh, Fundamental Attribution Error Fundamental Attribution Error Cognitive Bias Now it is important to note, he talks about his 2002 paper Both with respect to putting forward that conspiracy theories are examples of research programs Thus we can judge whether they're good or bad as to whether they're progressive or degenerative He also does mention in this paper that he talked about psychological issues that certain conspiracy theorists should have. What he doesn't note in this paper is that he's resiled his 2002 views later on in the book by yes. David Cody. But um, at any rate, the site matters psychological do not feature in this paper at all. No. no. It's, it's interesting, he, he cites his 2002, mm. doesn't cite his 2006. Um, yes. Um, so, I mean, he, he, he talks about, he gives a summary of, of uh, the, what he's talked about before in terms of, of research programs and productive uh, versus unproductive research programs. He says um, many conspiracy theories should be judged to be at the core of degenerating research programs because they seem to imply predictions that are not successful and um and here starts talking explicitly about nine eleven um we we've seen previously people had you know people had started talking about it in the literature by this point, but um as we will see once we start going through things by two thousand and seven the nine eleven truth movement was actually starting to get off the ground um so there's plenty to talk about here um so uh Steve starts by pointing out that the al qaeda the the official theory quote unquote 9 nine eleven is an example of a productive research program. Um, he notes, if you'll recall, uh, David Cody, uh, in his paper, talked uh, gave, gave the idea that one of the, he wanted to, to define conspiracy theories as being opposed to the official version, like by definition. Um, so Steve does note that you know, if, if you follow that definition, then things like the al-Qaeda theory and Watergate can't be conspiracy theories because they're the official one now but he does point out well at at the very least things like Watergate weren't always the official version so they they were conspiracy theories for some point in their existences but that's I think that was just sort of you know covering all the bases there Um, that that doesn't really seem to come up further on and it is important to note that Steve is willing to bite the bullet here unlike some philosophers at the time and go look Actually, any explanation which cites a conspiracy turns out to be a conspiracy theory of some shape some way, shape, or form mm. so it doesn't really matter what you believe about nine eleven you believe a conspiracy theory, so one of them has been ordained the official theory, the the others have not So indeed he he explicitly says It can seem odd to refer to these widely accepted theories As conspiracy theories Especially when, as in the case of the Al-Qaeda theory They are opposed by prominent conspiracy theories Nevertheless these are theories Which involve secret plans And by the lights of widely accepted definitions Of conspiracy theories Such as the definitions due to Pigden and Keeley They therefore count as conspiracy theories So yeah, makes, makes the point um, perfectly well But uh, then we move on to part two and part two is the internet, all in capital letters. Do you write internet with a capital I or not? I don't, know. no. No, I, I still kind of do, but that has been there's been a bit of debate in sort of uh, technical writing or writing in general theory. Is it, given that the internet these days is just sort of kind of a utility, you wouldn't capitalise electricity or water, so you shouldn't capitalise internet. But I don't know, maybe I'm just an old-fashioned guy. You're very old-fashioned with your with your your dual monocles over your eyes. Well, yes, yes, should get me some laser surgery. I what you should do is you'd make both monocles pop spontaneously, or more, yeah, one mm. after the other. That mm. that would be worth seeing. Mm. Anyway. So talking about conspiracy theories and the internet, uh, Steve says some conspiracy theories will co- require a bit more evidence of degeneration than is normally required before that, sorry, some conspiracy theorists require a bit more evidence of degeneration than is normally required before they will give up belief in a favoured conspiracy theory. Some require a lot more evidence and some will never give up on their favourite conspiracy theory, regardless of the degree of degeneration of the associated research programme. I appealed to findings in psychology to explain this phenomenon. And I think that's all he says... About that, yeah. So basically, as I psychology. as I noted on rereading, not really mentioning that he resigned from this analysis a few years later. And then there was, then there was this lovely bit. Um, oh no, sorry, no, we're not, we're not quite at the lovely bit yet. There's a, there's, a, there's a little bit before that. I'm I'm jumping the gun in my eagerness. Um, he talks about uh, so, sort of the, the the effect, the the social effects of the internet. Um, he says significant changes in social and material circumstances can have an effect on the quantity and quality of the conspiracy theories that are advocated. Now, of course, this is something we've talked about plenty before, right? The, the, the sort of society you live in, you, you experience that in Romania, obviously, a lot. A, a more conspiratorial society leads to more conspiracy theories. Yes, your judgments of prior probability of how conspired your society is tend to then dictate... How conspired do you think your, your society is going to be in the here and now? Hmm. So he continues, I will argue that the development and widespread use of the internet, which has had significant social effects, has also had a profound effect on the development of conspiracy theories. It is commonly held that conspiracy theories have flourished on the internet, citing Morello, 2004. However, I will argue that although the internet has enabled the dissemination of many more conspiracy theories than there once were, the internet has not been an unqualified boon to conspiracy theorists. I will argue that the internet has actually retarded the development of many conspiracy theories. In terms of the um, quantity thing, though, this is something you've mentioned before that Joe's talked about. Are, Are there actually more conspiracy theories than there used to be, do you think? Not that we can tell with respect to polling and surveys. So I know anecdotally everyone goes, oh, the internet is awash with conspiracy theories. And of course we're now talking about 2020 as opposed to 2007. Mm. But it's not particularly obvious when you start doing the polling that conspiracy theories are any more popular now. And indeed the polling indicates that really the height of conspiracy theory rhetoric was back in the 1960s and so So I can't really think that 2007 is quite as awash with conspiracy theories as Steve makes it out to be mm. I think the difference is it suddenly became a lot easier to find conspiracy theories because of the internet Not because there were suddenly more of them mm. And so he harking back to things he's talked about previously about sort of the attitudes of intellectuals towards conspiracy theories and whether, whether intellectuals are justified in sort of disregarding. And he talks about the fact that because conspiracy theories are often disregarded by, by intellectuals or um, uh, this sort of, I think elitists was the term that came up again as well. Um, Conspiracy theorists will be drawn to the less official channels since the, this, this is a bit early, I think, in the development of the internet for people to be talking about the MSM and what have you, but um, the official channels are maybe less well regarded, but the internet, anyone can go on the internet, there's there's nothing official about it, um, and so therefore conspiracy theories, or um, well, therefore the internet rather, is attractive to people who are wanting to promote or find out about conspiracy theories. Now this. Now this is the bit I was waiting for. This yeah. is the bit that you were also tweeting the uh, tweeting just yesterday I think. Here's the section and is uh, this this excerpt in a section on the, on the internet where he says there is a vast amount of information that is available on the internet at the click of a mouse. However, people have much difficulty assessing the reliability of much of this information. There are calls to establish conventions regarding the reliability of information on the internet. See Kunst and Others, 2002, Wetter & Wachbreut 2003. And there seems to be no in-principle reason why such conventions could not be established and why these could not achieve general acceptance. So the difficulty of assessing the reliability of information on the internet may only be a short-term phenomenon. Ah, you delightful optimist, you hopeful summer child. I don't think that's a a, a paragraph that's aged particularly well, unfortunately. No, and I mean, it's not really Steve's fault. Back in in 2007, we really did think we would get to grips with this online phenomenon of passing information around. And it turns out that not only did we not get to grips with it, But the businesses that run the social media organizations we rely upon have spent vast amounts of time and money lobbying world governments to stop there being any kind of regulation to make it easy for us us to discern what's going on on online. So in 2007, the future really did look so bright, you had to wear shades. Mm. Now now we live in the end of Trump's presidency, where it seems that people are now being persuaded that Trump won the election fair, fair and square because we aren't mm. very good at discerning what happens online at all. No, yes, the most we've got is, is the the vague sort of stabs at Twitter putting up little this content is still under dispute or something and similar things on Facebook, which seem to be very much a band-aid. Also, the other thing that stuck out to me a second ago we were quoting a Morello, now we're quoting a Vedder. Did every 90s rock legend end up becoming a a philosopher of conspiracy theories? Or is that just coincidence? You don't even know who Tom Morello is, do you? No, I don't. No, guitarist from Rage Against the Machine. Anyway, uh, that is not yeah. relevant. What is well, relevant actually, I mean, is I mean, that at this right. point, so Steve is, sets I, out. I know Rage Against the Machine. I just don't know the individual artists in Rage Against the Machine. Fair enough. I have to say, you know, if if I if I didn't have to work for a living, I would spend a large amount of my free time watching YouTube videos of people reacting to hearing "Killing in the Name of" for the first time. Because there is not much better than that, it must be said. Do yourself a favor and look it up. Anyway, um, so yeah, Steve gets into the guts of his theory, or, or at least the beginnings of the guts of his theory here, saying, It might seem that the internet has aided conspiracy theorizing by accelerating the rate at which conspiracy theories degenerate or progress. However, there are two reasons to think that this is not the case, and that the internet may actually serve to slow down the development of conspiracy theories. So, his two reasons are the first is the reason that we've just talked about the fact that um it's it's difficult it, it was at the time and remains difficult to establish how reliable information is on the internet um as Steve puts it, if we cannot agree on the facts that will be accounted for, then it is difficult to agree about whether a research program is progressing or degenerating. Can you hear the siren outside my window? I certainly can It's uh, well, siren so can our listeners excellent so, so that's the first one which you've kind of gone over already, and then the second reason is uh, as he puts it there is reason to suppose that the high level of critical discussion on the internet may create an atmosphere that is not conducive to the construction of conspiracy of theories that are stated explicitly enough to function as the core of either a progressive or a degenerative research program now when he talks about there being a high level of critical discussion on the internet At first blush, that could be a compliment. High level can mean good, critical discussion. That's the sort of thing we do all the time. But I think what he means is people are incredibly like to criticize a lot. And essentially, the internet is full of dicks. Yeah. So the kind of model he's thinking of is you decide that you've got a particular conspiracy theory you want to introduce to the world. And you write a blog post because in 2007, that's what you do. And the problem with writing a blog post is that you might spend several hours composing your post, trying to put forward the best argument possible for your particular conspiracy theory, but within minutes of putting that post online, people are going to find it and start critiquing you or calling you a dick and engaging in the ad hominem fallacy. So the idea being that, yes, the Internet is great for disseminating information. The Internet is also great for instant replies to information. And this kind of comes out later on in the paper, where Steve talks about the model of how conspiracy theories were spread before the Internet was a thing, whereby you would write a magazine article or you would write a book, at which point people would read your article or book And then they would write a letter to the editor, or they'd write a letter to your publisher, and then information would get back to you very slowly. And so Steve takes it that the instantaneous way in which people are able to react to conspiracy theories online actually seeks to impede their growth. As opposed to what happened in the old days, where because things were so slow, you could kind of develop your conspiracy theories in a more gradual and more grandiose way. Mm. And I guess there's the the matter of effort as well. It takes no effort to dash off a comment on the bottom of a blog, but you kind of need to you kind need to want to you know to to send letters to the editor or engage in actual some sort of correspondence. There's a bit more of an uh, of an effort threshold required. Yes, I mean, Um, as someone who has replied to tweets and also written letters to the editor at the New Zealand Herald, it's much easier to tell someone they're being stupid on the internet than to try and compose something that you think the letters editor is going to publish. So at this point, Steve goes on to talk about how conspiracy theorists operate, or at least operated in 2007, but I think it's pretty much the same. So as he says, conspiracy theorists are typically engaged in two sorts of activities. First, they try to develop theories explaining observed phenomena that involve one or more conspiracies. Second, they look for anomalies that are not explained by a received view which their theory competes with. And certainly that search for anomalies is something we see in just about everything. They're searching for anomalies all over the place in in the states at the moment, trying to find any sort of evidence of voter fraud that they can come up with. He he says, oftentimes a conspiracy theory involves the postulation of a cover story, which is designed to prevent people generally finding out about the true nature of the conspiracy in question. And yes, yeah, cover-up conspiracies—that's um, that's that's that stock and trade. And he says, conspiracy theories can develop in a variety of ways, but typically they start in one way. A conspiracy theorist typically begins by identifying anomalies in a received view. This motivates further investigation, which can lead to the discovery of further anomalies and may prompt the suspicion that the received view is a cover story that has been promoted by a group of conspirators in order to prevent the general public from finding out the truth. The last step in this development sequence is that an alternative explanation is postulated. And I think yeah, that's true. Sometimes, but sort of, when I think of the things we look at, especially like your sort of false flag conspiracy theories and stuff like that, they don't notice something an anomaly in, a, in an official version and then start developing a theory on the back of that. They decide that there's a conspiracy straight away and then start looking for any looking for anomalies to back up their view. You know, as, as soon as there's any sort of a major shooting, with, like within moments, someone will be saying it's a false flag theory. Now they haven't spotted any anomalies that have caused them to come up with this theory it's just taken as read now and and also if you come from a culture in which conspiracies are particularly common in your political discourse say as i keep on talking about with respect to romania where a corrupt government does corrupt things all the time you're just going to suspect that something is up no matter what is going on because all the other times something has occurred. It turns out something really was up in the background anyway. You don't have to be looking for anomalies. Sometimes you go, look, the normal course of affairs in our society indicates that conspiracy is just very, very likely. mm or well, the other other example I was thinking of is returning again to the U.S. election at the moment. I mean, w- when you see interviews with with um, Trump supporters and so on, they seem to be just starting from the position that no Trump can't have lost. He just can't. I just I I, I won't believe it, and 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 from there go on for a look, uh, go on a search for an- anomalies. But anyway, at, at any rate, Steve did start this by saying conspiracy theories can develop in a variety of ways, but um. The one that he gave as typical isn't the kind that sticks out to me in this day and age. And again, of course, this was writing in 2007. Um, Now his quote continues, it is only when an alternative explanatory theory has been postulated that we're in a position to begin assessing whether that alternative explanatory theory is at the core of a progressive or a degenerating research program, which is what he's interested in. It is easy for conspiracy theorists operating on the internet to become caught up in rapidly developing debates about anomalies in a well-known received view that is being challenged by other conspiracy theorists. When this happens, conspiracy theorists can become bogged down in the business of challenging a received view and may end up taking longer to articulate a clear alternative. And this, this, that, that really is where things really start to strike a chord with me because this is something we've talked about. This is something I've said a lot before. My my problem generally with things like 9-11 truth conspiracy theories is that they spend all their time bagging the official version and and are very um, very vague when it comes to any sort of positive claims they're making um, on their own um, we, we've talked about this plenty of times I looked all the way back all the way back in episode 66 by which time we'd already been going for over a year but anyway um, we did an episode on uh, World Trade Center building seven. Um, and referred to, there's an art, a t- 2013 article, so post dates when we're talking about by six years, but um, by Michael J. Wood and Karen M. Douglas. It was a, a, a psychology article about the psychology of building seven conspiracies, and sort of the conclusion of it was that conspiracy theorists spend much more time trying to debunk the official theory. Um, than they do be putting forward their own explanations. And that seems to be typical, question mark? I mean, I don't know whether it's typical. I know it happens often enough that we remark upon it. And it is true. There are a whole bunch of conspiracy theories that are more inclined to debunk the official theory than they are to put forward rival hypotheses, which are as fulsome. But I'm just not entirely convinced that... That's the normal way of doing things. I worry that maybe we're dealing here with... Look, these are the obviously weird conspiracy theories. They spend more time debunking other views. And this has got us vexed about what they're doing. As opposed to asking the question, is this normal? Or are we simply picking on these ones Mm. because they're the ones that really fascinate us? Yes, you could be right, actually, because maybe it's not typical of conspiracy theories in general. It does seem to be fairly typical of 9-11 truth conspiracy theories, though, which I guess is why he then uh, goes on to use them as his case study. Um, So we move on to part three of this paper, Controlled Demolition and um this paper actually is is quite a good um, interesting rundown of the history of 911 or specifically controlled demolition conspiracy theories up to 2007 um so the first publication he points to is a book called Painful Questions published in 2002 by Eric Huffschmidt which is not a story about children asking about sex no although it sounds I'm not familiar with that one is I assume it hasn't taken on Yeah, it's one of those things Probably 2002 to 2007 It seemed like a particularly big thing In retrospect, it's really Kind of a footnote in the history Of of 9-11 truth So the two The two big names he talks about At this point are David Ray Griffin And Stephen E. Jones Uh, Doesn't mention Richard Gage I had a quick look on Wikipedia And apparently Richard Gage founded The Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth In November of 2007 So that would have been after this paper was written And we have to recall I mean this paper's published in 2007 hmm, So it would have been written Yeah, Yeah, it may well have been written Towards the end of 2006 Which is actually I think Calls into question how we talk about the analysis of the internet in general because we go, look, by 2007, Facebook is two years old, Twitter's just on the scene. It's actually quite likely this paper was written pre Twitter when Facebook was actually something that very few people mm. used. Yeah, so yes, yeah, so Richard Gage doesn't get a mention um but that's because we're in the past now and that's how time works uh he does mention mention loose change and passing um uh and also lists a bunch of organizations um supporting the official theory and opposing these 911 truth organizations stating online debate between proponents and opponents of the controlled demolition theory is intense and extremely polemical which i think is the politest way of describing that phenomenon i've ever heard yeah yeah, it seems seems quite quaint in retrospect. Mm. Um, so he says, much of the discussion in Griffin and Jones is concerned with the criticisms of the received view, uh, and by contrast, little is said about the details of the positive theory. and like i, I, I don't I don't pay a lot of attention to 9/11 truth theories outside of the scope of this podcast. I, I've, like I've heard different. Like positive actual theories put forward, but is there is there anything like a, a, a grand unified view of nine eleven truth in terms of what actually did happen? I mean, I I literally don't know. I've been thinking mm. about this a lot since rereading the paper because I had a question mark there, which is how true is Steve's portrayal of nine eleven now? So let's just leave the two thousand and seven thing to one side. How true is it that 9-11 truthers by and large are still questioning the received view rather than putting forward a grand theory of their own? And I think they're probably putting forward a grander theory than they did back in 2007. But an awful lot of what I've read, and I don't spend much time reading 9-11 truth Stuff because I'm actually not that interested in 9 11 as an event, largely because I do accept the official theory that it was the actions of Al Qaeda. Most of the stuff I've read is still very much focused on showing discrepancies in the official theory and then doing the Richard Gage thing of saying, I'm not going to say who actually did it, but you know, you Um, can work it out. Yes, now so he talks about he talks about the uh, Griffin and Jones the the sorts of things they say he says um, Griffin makes two substantial claims regarding the positive theory first that the conspiracy was perpetrated by domestic terrorists and i have to say until i read this paper i hadn't actually seen this specific um this specific angle on it because um he takes it that if 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 we're if we're acting under the assumption that it was a controlled demolition um, if it were simply foreign powers, if it were evil terrorists wanting uh, to cause as much destruction as possible they wouldn't go with a controlled demolition they wouldn't care how controlled it was so the fact, quote unquote that it was a controlled demolition means it must have been people internal people who wanted to localize the destruction just to these buildings and not damage any more than they had to um and then he says that griffin's second substantial claim is that the controlled demolition uh, demolition together with the cover up needed to ensure that it did not become publicly known could only have taken place with the assistance of forces within the us government so we start to get a, a look at, uh, at, at who the culprit might be or at least at least the area to look for them um and i mean i guess maybe that is one thing about the 911 truth stuff they all most of them seem fairly, fairly happy to say, oh, it was the Bush administration. It was elements within the Bush administration because they'll talk about the Patriot Act and they'll talk about, you know, essentially that the Bush administration then got to do everything they'd been wanting to do off the back of nine eleven, Um Which we're going to see analogs of with COVID-19 lockdowns long term, I feel. Mm. Yeah, I even, I saw... Um, a uh, clip from The Daily Show today, where old good old Jordan Klepper's been off to his Trump rallies again, talking to one guy who was explicitly saying that yes, COVID nineteen was caused by the Democrats, so that there would be a whole lot more male voting in the election, which would then be fraudulent and 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 steal the election for Joe Biden. Um, but yeah, so apparently Jones doesn't suggest any particular culprits or motive for the. Controlled demolition of the twin towers, um, and his 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 conclusion is that he wants to set up a, a sort of an unbiased panel to investigate it properly, which sounds like basically a fancy way of saying he's just asking questions. Yes, Jones was the Jerry Brownlee of his day. Mm. Um, and so then Clark sort of, but basically, basically goes on to point out a whole bunch of problems with the controlled demolition theory. And I think the angle he's getting at is because this isn't a properly specified theory, because it's so vague. There are all these holes, which maybe could be corrected if they were, if if they were to say, you know, be, be a bit more specific and detailed, and, and a bit more concrete in what they're saying. Um, he says. The broader theory that they're implicitly committed to appears to be quite baroque. The controlled demolition theory involves an unnamed, nefarious organization which was able to organize for three very large buildings to be pre-wired for demolition, apparently without any of the thousands of office workers who worked in those buildings thinking it worth mentioning to others that unusual events were occurring in their places of work. Such preparations would take a long time and would typically involve obvious evidence of suspicious activity, such as the partial removal of interior walls on all blast doors." Um, he also uh, th- this version of the controlled demolition theory that that Clark is talking about, that presumably that that, that um, Jones and Griffin were advocating, does allow that planes were actually flown into the towers. So it doesn't go for the whole, you know, the, it wasn't planes; it was missiles, it was holograms and directed energy weapons, or what have you, <coughs> and nanothermite. No, yeah, well, you know, it hasn't come on the scene yet either. Um, it will do though, very very soon. Yes, um, so but but then that that causes problems as well because uh, as he says the theory also appears to involve the difficult to believe plane that the preset blast charges in uh, WTC one and two could have survived the impact of the planes and the subsequent fires which burned on the floors near the points of impact for 102 minutes and 56 minutes respectively prior to collapse and uh, which again is another point that I hadn't really sort of considered the the the, the we saw the towers burn. For a good wee while Before they collapsed Which is presumably when this controlled demolition was set off So you have to allow that The the explosives that they'd carefully set up Were such that they couldn't be Set off at the wrong time Or disabled completely by the plane Impact I mean this is actually one of the issues I had with the Richard Gage talk That I saw both in Wellington And in Auckland back in the day Is that the way that Richard Gage Describes the 9-11 event has it that the event actually, when he describes it, looks very much like the collapse of a building due to structural issues after two planes flew into them. He's like, oh, no, 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 it is a controlled demolition. The controlled demolition is set up to look like the collapse of a building by having an explosion in the midsection, then a series of explosions in the upper section above where the plane flew into it, then causing collapse in the lower section, you end up going, your theory's a lot more complicated and more baroque than just the hypothesis that two very large planes flew into two very large buildings, cause structural issues which cause the first half to collapse and then the second half to collapse. I mean, why bring in the controlled demolition thing when there's a simple mm-hmm. explanation of massive structural damage caused by planes flying into buildings yes it doesn't doesn't seem to make a lot of sense um, and then his final point is that uh, Lastly it appears that the conspirators are either only interested in conducting a single major terrorist act Or are very patient and are prepared to wait for long periods of time before striking again An organisation of such power and competence could surely have conducted further terrorist attacks on a similar scale But it appears that it has had no desire to conduct any such operations in the last six years Or indeed now in the last 19 yeah. years Let me note the one thing I, I put in the article at that point Zing it is quite the zing. So, having having done his uh, his case study, uh, we now get to part four of the paper, Getting Conspiracy Theories Off the Ground. And so basically what he wants that to say... That should be getting conspiracy theories off ground zero. Mm, could have been more punny, but there you go. Um, so he wants to say that basically if, if Griffin and Jones... Supplied more detail in their theory and made more actual positive claims about what they think did happen, not what they think didn't happen. What was wrong with the official version? Um, then we then we could actually begin to make predictions based on these theories, and they could become productive um, productive models. But As he says, we cannot yet say that the Controlled Demolition Theory is at the core of a degenerative or a progressive research program because we do not have a well-specified set of core theoretical commitments that constitute the Controlled Demolition Theory. What we have is a proto-theory. Now, at the time I read this, back in 2007, my notes indicate that I agreed with Steve on this matter. As someone looking back on my work in 2020... I don't think I do, and that the way that I define conspiracy and conspiracy theory in my work, it is sufficient to go, there's something fishy about the story we're being told, given evidential concerns. I can't really specify exactly what's going on here, but it's enough to say there's a cover-up or collusion of some particular kind, and that then warrants the claim a conspiracy is going on. So yes, it would be nice to have a well-specified conspiracy theory in situations of this type. At the same time... Sometimes all you need is a well-grounded suspicion that we're not being told the full truth, to go, look, there's a conspiracy theory going on here. I'm not entirely sure of the details, but let's investigate it and find out what's really happening. Hmm, yes. Um, what What he does, though, is uh, contrast the, this sort of proto-theory um, with with one of his actual predictive progressive research programs so he says um By contrast with the controlled demolition theory, the Al-Qaeda theory is quite clearly specified. The names of key members of the organization are specified along with the immediate objective, in theory, which is to resist Western political and military influence in the Islamic world. The World Trade Center was a symbol of US power, and it is plausible to think that the members of Al-Qaeda see US foreign policy as the chief source of Western political influence in the Islamic world, so the attack on the World Trade Center is explicable on the Al-Qaeda theory. I've characterized this theory as being at the core of a progressive research program. Some might disagree with me about this, but it would be hard to disagree with the claim that it is at the core of a well-articulated research program. Because yes, it it, it gives, um, it gives culprits, it gives motive, um, it it gives you know the the official theory gives means essentially. What are the things you're supposed to have for a crime? Means, motive, opportunity. Yeah, that, it, it's it's all there. Um, so believe it or not, it at least is a, a theory that can be um, can be analysed and and uh, tested basically. But conversely, and not to come across as a nine eleven truther here, if you believe the hypothesis that this was an inside job, you can also talk about means, motive, and opportunity with respect to wanting to secure oil futures in the Middle East or wanting to engage in warfare overseas because that's what hawkish members of the Republican Party desire. I think part of the problem here is that Steve is going, look, predictive success is an important part of any successful theory, and that is true in the sciences. But we're not dealing with scientific theories when we're dealing with conspiracy theories. At best, we're dealing with social scientific theories or things akin to historical explanations, where predictions are things which are nice to have, but they're actually not an essential feature of those theoretical complexes. Yes, I mean, certainly the um, the 9-11 truth theories uh, are less... um, specified i guess is is um the way he put it um they they suggest well it's it's the bush administration although they aren't able to give key players and they give uh, possible motives which yep fair enough but um they don't uh sort of the, the talk of the means um as as we already said it was would be a difficult thing to pull off, and they don't, yeah. You know, but but basically, it's it's my nano it's my nanothermite whinge again. The people who say, "Oh, we obviously have proof of nanothermite." Well, how did it get there? Oh, that's who. That's your job to look up. You know. Um, but yes, no, I think I think there is something to what you say. But we move along to part five, conclusion. Um, and the conclusion goes the internet has aided in the dissemination of the controlled demolition theory but it also appears to have retarded its development it seems plausible to think that advocates of the theory have failed to develop specific versions of the theory, because they're keen to avoid the criticisms that they know they would attract were they to commit to a specific version of the theory. As we've seen, there are many defenders of the received view, active on the internet, who are ready to attack advocates of the controlled demolition theory, and these advocates would be much more vulnerable to attack were they to commit to a specific variant of the theory. Advocates of the controlled demolition theory also attract criticism from proponents of rival conspiracy theories, as well as from other advocates of the controlled demolition theory. They could. Read reasonably expect more of this criticism if they were to commit themselves to a specific version of the theory which I, f- I-, I felt that bit seemed a-, a little bit underdeveloped I don't know it's sort of at-, at the be- very beginning he talks about basically people are dicks and by, by giving a specific-, a specific view you open yourself up to more criticism and then had quite a good analysis of the controlled demolition thing and then at the end just kind of stuck the two together. I kind of agree with it but I don't know if it if that 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 uh, section of the argument is as fleshed out as it could have been. No, I mean, it's one of those things where it seems intuitive, but I think you need to do more work to show that that intuitive thing it actually follows from what you see in the body of people putting forward conspiracy theories. Mm. And as I think you noted, it, it's questionable as to whether or not this is a new thing brought on by the internet because while, yeah, there are, there are the, the conspiracy theories that people wrote books on and developed quite um, thoroughly, other, other, other conspiracy theories historically have been fairly sort of vague and meandering as well. Well, yes, precisely. I mean, most, most anti-Semitic conspiracy theories simply go, you know who to blame? The Jews. Why? Ah, because they're... They're unsanitary, or they own all the bi- buildings, or, you know, they control all the money. We don't need to get into specifics. We just need to blame them. They're the people responsible. Mm, yes, and not always particularly well well articulated either. Um he has a little bit on the way things worked before the internet. Um, he says, conspiracy theories are typically theories that are pitched against a dominant received view. It may be that these are best developed initially in the, absence of dire- in, sorry, in the absence of direct competition with the received view. Indeed, this was the typical pattern of development of a conspiracy theory before the advent of widespread use of the internet. A theory would be developed by an individual or a small group who are cut off from the mainstream media. Oh, look, the term is there now. It was only uh, typically only when these conspiracy theorists had a relatively well-fleshed-out conspiracy theory which... Which was developed enough to deflect obvious criticisms that they would seek to publicize this widely, principally through the publication of books that outline the relevant theory in detail. Uh, and again, true for that sort of conspiracy theory, but but for your anti-Semitic general vague ones, um, possibly not as true. And also, when we do have a notability thing here, which is only some conspiracy theories advocated in magazine articles and books get remembered in the first place anyway. So presumably the ones that we recall are the ones which are very well specified. That doesn't tell us how many vague conspiracy theories were being put forward in letters to the editor or magazine articles at that time. It just tells us that because that stuff was ephemeral, we don't know about it. Mm. But anyway, we're at the end of the paper now. His final words are, In the era era of the internet, conspiracy theories such as the controlled demolition theory are developed in the glare of worldwide publicity. Advocates of conspiracy theories on the internet have been reluctant to advertise positive theories. It seems that this is because they fear being criticized by any of the billions of people who have access to the internet, a significant minority of whom are happy to devote their energies to attacking conspiracy theories discussed on the internet. So instead, they concentrate their views on criticizing the received view. As long as there are ways in which the received view is less than perfect, this activity can proceed and internet conspiracy theorists can remain active. However, in and of itself, this activity cannot be sufficient to overthrow a received view in favor of a conspiracy theory. The most it can do is cause people to suspend judgment. Before we can reasonably expect a conspiracy theory to replace a received view, that conspiracy theory must be judged to provide a superior explanation of the relevant phenomena than the received view. But this cannot happen unless the conspiracy theory in question is fleshed out to the extent that it, is, that it is in a position to figure in specific explanations of the events in question. And there you have it. I think I, 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 I think I agree with what he's saying in this paper. I just think maybe it's not as general a claim as he's putting it across. Maybe it only applies to sort of a subset rather than conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories on the Internet in general. Yes, I think the problem here is there's a good idea here, which is it turns out in the era of the Internet, people might decide to be vaguer in their claims because it's easier to defend a vague claim that is to suffer the onslaught of a lot of people going, look, you said it was Richard Third, but actually Richard II was the king of England at that particular point in time. I've just shown your entire theory to be false. Good day, sir. And you're going, you yeah, know, sorry, that was a typo. What I meant to say was. But at the same time, that's, and I mean, it's worth having that kind of critique about the way in which people might decide to not be so specific because of the fear they're going to be so easily criticised. But we shouldn't be generalising about that about all conspiracy theories in the modern era. Mm. Yes, so definitely some good ideas there, nevertheless. Um, so, so we're we're um, we're going to be going through this uh, episode, uh, this episode, this issue of episteme and subsequent uh, conspiracy theory masterpiece theatres, are we? We are indeed. There's going to be some Basham. There's going to be some Pictum. There's going to be a bit more coding. There's going to be a bit of Neil Levy, who we haven't encountered Ooh. as of yet. And indeed, we're going to have Pete Mandick with his salaciously titled paper. Shit happens. Ooh, how vulgar! I know. Mm. Right, but until then, um, we're done. We're done with this episode. Um, so it just remains to say that. Uh, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, we will bid you farewell. But if you're one of our patrons, you'll get a bonus episode. And yeah, I was I was probably uh, understating things a little bit when I said that there's plenty of elections. Actually, I don't know. Looking at the content now, what have we got? We've got some Trumpy stuff, but we we do have a decent amount of other stuff, don't we? We do. But I mean, there's, there's Trumpy stuff. There's Hunter Biden stuff. I mean, there's some local election stuff. And then we've got an update on good old Russia and the way they like killing people in really, really Baroque ways. Mm. So um, if you're a patron, you have that to look forward to. If you're not a patron and you'd like to hear about that, then you can become one just by going to patreon.com uh, and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. But um, patron or not, this main part of the episode is over. So, unless you have anything else to say, I think we should draw things to a close. Indeed, I think we should declare this case closed. Case closed. Goodbye, everyone. it. You've been listening to The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extender which is written, research, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Violent green is meeples.